I don't usually jump right in with something like this, but I couldn't resist this time. So listen to the first bit of the original 1958 trailer for the film A Night to Remember. The 14th of April, 1912. A night to remember. A night when the largest, most luxurious liner of her day was speeding across the North Atlantic on her maiden voyage. No expense had been spared to make this ship a symbol of man's final victory over nature. Her first-class passengers were the very cream of society, the aristocrats from Europe and millionaires homeward bound to America. In the steerage class, everyone enjoyed their own kind of boisterous fun. Then there were the second-class passengers and the crew. 2,208 happy, confident people speeding across a flat, calm sea in a ship that everyone knew was unsinkable. Absolutely unsinkable. The ship was called the Titanic. A ship full of happy, confident people. I don't mean to seem too cynical. I'm sure that most of them probably were. It's important this phrase here, though, because the Titanic disaster, and particularly this film's version of it, is all about the dawn of this age of anxiety, or it has become about that in the narrative. The birth of modern anxiety, the birth of an age of uncertainty within just that instant of the iceberg in this movie. Or I suppose the two and a half hours that followed it. But you should watch this trailer. It's a complete 1950s time capsule. And also because there's really some bewitching little tidbits in there. Like when they mention second class as this throwaway line, they show just the briefest shot of a man taking a woman's hand and walking into her stateroom, which is weird for 1958. Someone explain that to me. It's slightly suggestive. And of course, as you heard, everybody in third class was enjoying their boisterous fun. But to be more serious, it's really the line, the ship was called the Titanic, that is perhaps the most important in that clip. The thing is, they kind of had to mention that, what ship it was. Titanic in 1958 wasn't any sort of given. It didn't loom so large as it does now in the global consciousness, in our cultural living sense of history. It wasn't on the tips of tongues. Its role as a metaphor, its folklore, it did circulate as with any other major disaster over the decades. It did circulate. There were, uh, there are folklore moments that we can trace back to the teens or the 20s or the 30s. But there had, for the most part, been this big gap. Titanic's place in culture was decidedly peripheral after 1913, which explains its absence from major film and literature in the first half of the century, save, of course, for the 1953 Hollywood melodrama that we talked about a few weeks ago, and that one has a lot of problems. But it was not a product anymore. It was not a property after the urgency of it left the media in 1912, after it left the headlines as World War I approached. It wasn't some inherent, cohesive lesson or narrative until a man named Walter Lord changed all of that in the 1950s. I'm LA Beatles and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is Titanic on film. This is a big one. A Night to Remember from 1958.
We will undoubtedly talk more about Walter Lord on future regular episodes, but here is the briefest of briefs on the man. Walter Lord, who is universally credited with invigorating writing and research on Titanic in the 50s in such a way that his work informs most major histories of Titanic written after that, and especially until I'd say about 10 years ago, Lord had traveled as a child in the 1920s on Titanic's sister ship Olympic, which, as you may remember, and as many of you know well, was, save for a very few small cosmetic differences, basically Titanic's twin. So he had essentially been on Titanic, and he was obsessed by the sinking from those moments. He began as a child to collect Titanic memorabilia and to draw and sketch the ship over and over. He actually went on to earn a history degree from Princeton and then a law degree from Yale. His obsession drummed in the background always, and he wrote A Night to Remember in his spare time, already in his late 30s, while working as a copywriter at an ad agency. And to be quite honest, that's my favorite part of the story, of his story. So what what Walter Lord did was something that no one had thought to do in any organized fashion up to that point, up to the early 1950s, this point when he starts work, which is astounding to me. And what he did was to sit down and talk to the remaining survivors. I haven't really mentioned this yet on the podcast, but my academic training is actually rooted in the study of oral history. I've organized two major oral history projects before. One, and have nothing to do with Titanic, one was on early 20th century paper mill workers in Louisiana. That's where I'm originally from. And one was on early rock and roll in the South. And honestly, they're two of the best periods of my life. And this was years ago now when I first started studying history. It's a deep way to research. It's moving and it's emotional, but it's also really harrowing and really stressful in that fun way that things that are rewarding are stressful. The very first interview that I ever conducted, I was 20 years old. I was green as can be in terms of researching. And after it was over... I went to my advisor and he informed me that I needed to delete the entire interview, all two hours of it, because I'd allowed the subject, the man I was interviewing, I'd allowed his union representative to sit in on it. And Dave Anderson, if you're listening, if you ever find these episodes and listen to this one, let me know. I Let me let you know. I hated you in that moment so much, but thank you for teaching me a very valuable lesson that it's painful, but if your research is compromised, it's garbage. And I have no idea the specifics of how Lord conducted these interviews, but I hope it was one-on-one because it is so true. If you taint the room with other people, with anything, you can influence the person being interviewed and it's just not as authentic a document. And the other thing to keep in mind, and I just just throwing everything at the wall, playing devil's advocate, because I think you always need to. Also, these interviews were were with survivors, but they were conducted at this point 40 years after the sinking. So it's important to remember that in terms of all the things that we speak about with memory. Oral history is not something you typically associate with mass appeal, but Lord worked magic. This was history with mass appeal, written in short, digestible sentences at a clipping pace. It was published, A Night to Remember, in November of 1955, and by January had sold 60,000 copies. It stayed on the bestseller list for six months straight, and it has never been out of print since then. I began my entire podcast back at episode one with a quote from it, actually, that the death of Titanic was like the death of a small town. It's one of the most famous quotes from it. And some of Lord's phrases are so ingrained in the Titanic kind of canon and script, so to speak, that you can't unmarry him from anything to do with Titanic really anymore. Not easily, anyway. Stephen Beale has a great section on this in his book, Down with the Old Canoe, and I recommend you read it. 
he argues that although Lord's narrative is extremely modernist, you know, it has that choppiness, the almost stream of consciousness, the jumping around to different passengers across classes, this almost ethereal sense of feeling what that cold night felt like. That's what he was going for. And it does, so it's modernist, and that it does debunk the most kind of egregious of narratives, as Beale says, like Astor with the cigarette and the head held high, just standing on the deck at the end. But as Beale points out, and as I've, I want to credit Beale with these thoughts, but I've also had them as well, that it is still a narrative, and it still prioritizes a narrative of heroism. There is no irony This is a tale. Still, the disaster was made into this morality tale through Lord. And this is what I always try to keep in mind on this podcast and in my research, that something may be lauded and it may be fantastic and it may be history making. And all of these things describe Lord's book, A Night to Remember, but none of that guarantees objectivity. And that's not to fault Lord, not at all. Every historian, every writer has an agenda most of them for the better if they're a historian, but an agenda all the same. Now, there is a TV version of A Night to Remember, but to research it would have been an entirely different thread, and it's an intriguing one. I may circle back to it sometime next year, but for now, I want to get us to 1958. This was the first British feature film ever produced on The Sinking, and it was perceived by many to be semi-documentary. Even in some of the advertisements, the lines on that seem blurred. It was promoted as a documentary in some places, which it's, I guess if you really got down to it and debated what this movie is, I mean, it's certainly not a traditional documentary, but since it's based on such real events, I think perhaps at the time in the you know film industry or how movies were perceived, that was confusing. I could see that. The producer, William McQuitty, referred to it as a, quote, gi- gigantic documentary film in which, quote, all the cast seemed to become part of reality. And its identity as a British film, I would argue, is also crucial here as well. I think British films perhaps tend to have a more hearty reputation on the integrity front, almost just more of an air of authenticity in general, whether it's deserved or not. I think, you know, obviously that's a film by film decision, but I think British films do tend to age better in terms of that sense of general integrity and maybe sophistication, which I think is is part of this film's pedigree as well, that it is British. So I credit uh, Sarah Street, she's a British scholar of screen studies, for an article on the film, which I'll cite in my show notes, for really helping me think about this film and questions of authenticity in a much more organized fashion, and thinking about what authenticity even means. So A Night to Remember has really become the go-to juxtaposition for James Cameron's film. It's become this sort of, hey, if you want authenticity and you hate the love story, you hate Jack and Rose, you hate the way Cameron did it, then go back and watch this true classic. (laughs) That's sort of the, for a lot of people, that's kind of the reputation it has now. But, and this is what street really drives home. If you only think about the two together, or if you think about it in that context, it sort of skips over any analysis of A Night to Remember on its own and in the context of the 1950s. So I also want to dig into that analysis along the way as well. But first, let's talk about the film itself and its kind of bone, so to speak. And let me just say, especially in terms of specific similarities and differences between the 58 film and the 97 film. There's no way I could cover it all in one episode. I will touch on some of it, and I think it's important to touch on some of it. But like I said, another part of this is is analyzing A Night to Remember on its own, which that's, I mean, that's the most important thing, I think, in terms of, of going back and revisiting a film contextualizing it in its own time. I don't want to only contextualize it to 1997. That would be insane. So 
The film was put into the hands of British director Roy Baker. He was a London-born World War II veteran who had previously directed a few film noir-style crime movies, from what I could tell. And he would also go on to direct television after this, some, I think, very respected British television. But this is his crowning achievement, and I say that without sarcasm. It's a cherished British film, and Baker is cherished for making it. Cast as second officer Lightoller, another important figure here, arguably, and arguably Lightoller is the main character in this movie, was actor Kenneth Moore, cast as Lightoller. He was a huge British actor at the time. I read from one source that he was the highest paid British actor at the time. Moore, who had been an ambulance driver and seen active duty in the Navy during World War II, was known for rather jovial male characters in the 1950s, and you get a sense of that in his Lightoller, in the way that he plays him. This Lightoller in A Night to Remember is definitely less serious than in Cameron's film, and it's more realistic, right, that someone like Lightoller would have been excited to be on board, to be in this role on Titanic. And there's even a moment in the movie where he says that he'd rather be second officer on this ship than chief officer on a lesser ship. And that it's the disaster that makes him grim and uncertain. That's his character arc. That's his character development. And it's based on obviously some you know, testimony and thoughts from Lightoller. He had passed away by the time this is happening in, in 55 and 58, but he has a lot of sources he left behind. So that's sort of the narrative arc of Lightoller. And in Cameron's film, Lightoller is portrayed as darker. He seems to be thinking in the background very heavily. He almost seems to be having some sort of premonition of danger. He seems concerned the whole time, very heavy from the start. And I agree with people who've pointed this out over the years. That's not an original thought. In fact, Uh, Chelsea Pinkard and I were talking about that in in an episode a few weeks ago in the interview I did with her. But I agree with people who've pointed this out, that Cameron's Lightoller is a bit too dour in the beginning. More broadly, Lightoller really became the main, like I said, the main character in the larger social history tale of Titanic. It's sort of stayed that way over the last half century or so. He died a few years before Lord's work, but Lord talked with his widow. And like I said, we have a lot of primary sources from his memoirs. And in this movie, and this is something that Sarah Street astutely pointed out in the article I mentioned earlier, Lightoller's status here is a middle-class, sensible character who is the one who has the access and the insight into all the class levels on the ship. He's meant to be an amalgam of men of the 1950s who were like this, a a symbol of the post-war world where class distinctions were allegedly becoming more anachronistic by the day. So Kenneth Moore, you know, as an actor, he embodies this too. That's why he was cast. He was considered, like I said, this reliable, uncomplicated person, actor, happy-go-lucky, this new man of the 1950s plopped down in 1912 to show how far society had supposedly come. Titanic offered this nostalgia for heroism in an age of frenetic transition into an atomic age. But as Street points out, not everyone in the 1950s was buying that just yet. One reviewer wrote, quote, Underneath this daring social comment a mere half century later is the implication that the days when wealth brought privilege at the expense of others ended the night the Titanic went down. But that's a night we can't remember. It hasn't yet come. That's a really important moment. That review in 1958 especially as we look at the longer course of Titanic history and historiography and American and British history. That's a, that's a really important moment. And I think that person was ahead of their time. There was an optimism that class barriers were being erased in the 50s. But we, of course, understand now that in the 50s, the surface of class equality was barely even scratched by a fingernail at that point. That sounds cynical. 
It's important that this film was examining class at all, though. It is important in film history, and it's important in the Titanic historiography, absolutely. The film also had just an entire bevy of respected British actors. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, I recommend going to IMDb and looking through the cast list. A lot of people that would end up being in in more quintessential British films. But to note, the cast did not include a young Sean Connery ambling about as an extra. Apparently, this was a rumor for a long time, but has been debunked. A Night to Remember is often mentioned as also as in terms of film history, a really important precursor to this huge surge of disaster epics, disaster research in literature and film, and then fictional accounts of disasters in film in the 1960s. And then especially in the 1970s, think the Poseidon Adventure, think um, Towering Inferno. But authenticity is this film's self-referential language from the start, which obviously makes it very different from some fictional disaster epics. And the film has a note at the beginning that surviving fourth officer Joseph Boxhall served as a technical advisor. Remember Boxhall from episode one of this podcast? He was um, someone that I, some of his um, quotes and testimony were what I used to sort of open up the entire podcast, talk about the survivors in lifeboats the night that the ship went down. And so he he served as an advisor, as did an ex-commodore of the Cunard line, which was uh, one of White Star Line's, uh, you know, similar to White Star Line, one of their competitors. So the movie's producer, McQuitty, who I mentioned earlier, had seen the Titanic being built and launched in Belfast as a child. And so putting it on screen, putting Titanic on screen, was a lifetime's dream come true for him as well. As a side note, I'm a film person and it's Oscar movie release season. It's um, it's my Super Bowl time of year when all of the good movies come out. And I did just see the new film by Kenneth Branagh, Belfast. And the opening shots are actually of modern Belfast. And it's all Titanic. It's gorgeously done. It's aerial, aerial shots of the Harland and Wolf signs and the cranes and the massive hole of a slipway that Titanic once occupied in that ghost space sort of of that and it's a gorgeous movie too it's an ode to Belfast and and I highly recommend that film it's out now Uh, it should be on VOD soon I would imagine too Lord was consulted on the film and it adheres really closely to his book but keep in mind that Lord never made any claims that his work was definitive. He pointed out himself how much of the story of that night had died alongside the 1,500 people who died. He interviewed survivors who were still alive in the 50s, obviously, but that's a small set of people, such a small percentage of memory of what happened that night. Every writer, every historian picks and chooses their narrative from the buffet of possible narratives. And with Titanic, it's further muddled, all of it, by the lack of any true or factual record in terms of what happened that night among people. And I'm not talking about in a technical sense. We definitely have been able to technically study how the ship split, how the sinking happened, the wreck on the ocean floor. So don't get mad at me. (laughs) I don't mean technically, I mean, conversations, interaction, interpersonal interactions. Um, Sometimes I think it's presented that we have done that um, in terms of like memoirs and things, but we have not. There's no recordings, there's no real footage. You've got the Senate hearings from 1912. And you've got, like I said, memoirs and letters and diaries. But truly, guys, you've got to remember that Lord sat down and what he chose to put on paper is as objective as anything. And it went through the filter of his brain, just like this podcast goes through the filter of my brain. And so much of what he chose to highlight Ice warnings not reaching Captain Smith, the Californians mishandling of the situation, the heroism of someone like Lightoller, who I am not doubting, just so you know, let me be clear, but also the cowardice of someone like Bruce Ismay. It's all really, all of these things, these choices of lords have built the canon, built the narrative that appears ironclad in the, the Titanic history now. And it's easy to forget that Nothing is actually ironclad when it comes to Titanic, is all I'm saying, except the ship itself walked into that one. Titanic is iron and steel. 
Okay. <laughs> I walked into that one. All right. To be clear, I think that all of the topics I just listed, the themes that Lord picked, are insanely important and should be prominent in the analysis. But Lord even acknowledged that the potential failure of memory, he acknowledged that writing a work that uses as its sources the testimony of passengers 40 years later, we're talking imperfection here, not perfection. But sometimes that's a beautiful thing, the small imperfect stories that flow from people. And that is what oral history is all about. And it just has to be studied in the right and used in the right context. Accuracy, for all that it implies fact as a word, is subjective as a concept. But this film is incredibly accurate to Walter Lord's text. But <laughs> for as much as we reference the rigid authenticity of it, I do find it interesting that the film opens with a completely inauthentic scene, which is that it starts with the ship being christened in a christening ceremony with champagne. And this never happened. The White Star Line did not christen its ships, a fact which has helped along many conspiracy theory narratives over the years, as you can imagine. The film showcases the ship's class and caste system right away. It's organized into three levels, really, with the characters it introduces at the beginning and then follows through. So there's the set of first-class passengers, Sir Richard and Lady Richard, surely their stand-ins for Sir Cosmo and Lucille Lady Duff Gordon. And there's this comment as they're leaving, as the the children that live on their property, of you know, they're the children of the people that work for them. They're waving and smiling and singing. And the, I can't remember if it's the husband or wife just says, oh, they're just making sure that they have their holiday turkey. So it's sort of like, oh, the poor people, you know, the poor children. And then there are the second class passengers, Mr. and Mrs. Clark, and they're a newlywed couple, and they are really stand-ins for several new young couples who were actually on board. There were actually quite a few, which isn't surprising because it's a luxury liner, but there were quite a few honeymooning couples on board Titanic. And then there is the third class, uh, here represented by Pat Murphy, Martin Gallagher, and James Farrell, Irish men headed to America to make a fresh start. And I've got it, I'm about to get fired up. I have to say, you guys, there is a real problem, at least as I see it, with the fetishization of Irish immigrants in the Titanic story, of their music, their dancing, their supposed merriment at all times. It's here, and it's also in the 97 movie, so I'm not letting that one off the hook either. So the Irish represented a good portion of third class, but not the majority of, of third class. And I just think they're this go-to immigrant group to showcase because they speak English, because they're white. And what about the large number of Middle Eastern passengers? What about Jewish passengers from Eastern Europe seeking asylum? There's so many stories left unwritten in third class. And I just think it's, I just think it's something to think about. There's this infamous opening train scene with Kenneth Moore as Lightoller that draws this discussion around class right in, right in, right away to the film. And it's a line about um, a fancy soap that's going to be on board Titanic. And uh, Lightoller says, you know, because the, but the rest don't wash, aka the steerage passengers wouldn't be washing their bodies. And it makes clear from this early moment that this movie is about class and inequality. There's also at the beginning a scene in the victualing department. They're going over the books, all the different types of food that have to be loaded. I loved this scene. Side note, I did my first Patreon bonus episode, posted that first one, and it's on um, a few of the chefs and bakers. And I speak about uh, in that episode sort of about the organization of the victualing department. And it's really intriguing topic to delve into. And, and, and doing this bonus episode was the first time I had really sat down and gone over all of the sort of hierarchy of the employees and who worked in which department. And it just, once again, opened my brain to something completely new. I hadn't even thought about really yet. All right. Also to note, Bruce Ismay is here and he says, I'm just an ordinary passenger in the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> 
So the departure scene is a little choppy, doesn't age too well, but as a technical achievement, this film is pretty noteworthy for 1958. But I have to tell you, from a lot of information I kind of gathered online, it is, this is a piecemeal job. So four clips are actually from the Nazi propaganda film Titanic from 1943. It's crazy. And two of so this is uh, two shots of the ship sailing in calm water and then two of a flooding walkway in an engine room. And this actually isn't uncommon um, in cinema in, you know, I would say up until about 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know if I should stick to that. I need to research that more to put a year on it. But in earlier eras of cinema, it was very common to reuse footage from other films. Now that would be considered really taboo and it probably would be a legal nightmare, but things were not quite as regimented in that sense um, in previous eras of cinema history. So they reused that from, from the 1943 Nazi movie. Crazy. The Shaw Seville shipping line agreed to allow some of the exterior scenes on to be shot on one of their ships, but right before filming was to begin, supposedly, this is what I read, permission was taken away. And the matter, and that was because the matter had come to the attention of the chairman of the line, Basil Sanderson. It's an important name. There's a huge backstory there. He was the son of Harold Sanderson, who had been chairman of the White Star Line from 1913, right when Ismay leaves, to 1927. He was a friend of Ismay's. He'd married into the family. He did not want the matter of Titanic brought back into the cultural mind in this huge way. Little did he know he could not stop it. And neither did a lot of the other shipping companies want this brought back into the cultural mindset. So this um, this led to a decision by a man named Sir Frederick Rebick. He was chairman of Harland and Wolf at the time to also refuse cooperation. And again, this is what I read online. There has not been, from what I could find, a definitive like book that I can like, you know, get to these sources at their core where I can check some of these quotes and decisions. So just keep in mind in terms of research for these film series, a lot of it is coming from online and I try to make sure that I am am in the most reputable spot online uh, with experts that are writing, but it's just, I, I, you know, I feel like that disclaimer should always be there. But anyway, supposedly the chairman of Harlan Wolf refused to cooperate and the company was upset that a film company was seeking to make money out of the tragedy, essentially. So producer William McQuitty, producer of the film, managed to get permission from the firm of Ship Breaking Industries to film on an, an old steamship, the RMS Astorius, Astorius? A-S-T-U-R-I-A-S. That's hard to pronounce. Anyway, this ship was actually waiting to be broken up and demolished. And so it was repainted mid-demolition. It was repainted in white star colors by art students, and it was used in some of the scenes. One scene that I loved here was the wireless operator scene where they are commenting, where it's wireless operators actually on other ships out in the North Atlantic commenting on what they view as the frivolous messages being sent from Titanic from passengers, you know, back to Europe or forward to New York. And these scenes are really important. They work at something crucial, which is highlighting the role of the Marconi equipment on board. And it shows how the ice messages, the warnings of ice that come in all day heading into April 14th and then all day of the 14th, but sort of hypothesizing how these ice messages might have been deprioritized. And we don't get that in the 1997 film, really. I think there were some scenes on the cutting room floor that that Cameron left out, but we don't get that sense in the 97 movie. But here we get a real glimpse into, okay, for Titanic passengers, Marconi grams were entertainment, and they were sent to New York to make arrangements for arrival, or they were sent all over the world to let people know how the journey was going. And, and the two Marconi operators worked privately for the Marconi company. They were not employed by the White Star Line, technically speaking. And I don't know, it's, it's, 
It's a huge conversation. I'm going to have an episode on it. I actually am meeting with a close friend and her husband on Zoom tomorrow because they are Morse code experts and have studied uh, the Marconi story and all of this really intricately. And they're going to kind of help me, <laughs> help me answer some questions, go through some of this um, so that when I do that episode, I will be able to bring you incredibly accurate analysis. So that is a little bit of a tangent, but I do think those scenes are really important. The Marconi scenes are really important in a night to remember. Also missing from the 1997 film is the entire thread of the story of the Californian, which was the ship that was it's been essentially proven at this point, was within view of Titanic as she sank, and its captain, Stanley Lord, ignored rocket warnings that some of its officers saw through the night. And believe me, there will also be an episode on this. Several of you have already emailed me over the last couple of months about this topic in detail. I am reading, I hear you, that episode will come. And I've actually been reading quite a bit about it lately. And it's fascinating how much testimony we have from the men on board. Class is here as well with the character that is surely meant to be Margaret Brown, aka quote unquote, unthinkable Molly Brown. There's this scene where this woman is shouting that she was 15 when I married him in this loud Colorado voice. And that's not even true. That's not when Margaret Brown got married. But this large, this loud Colorado kind of, you know, hollering voice in the dining room. She's meant to stand out. She's supposed to be this, you know, riche nouveau character. She's in first class, but she doesn't belong there. And that's a whole thread as well. The big difference between this and, and 1997 is that there's just, you know, as in Lord's book, very little of what we'd call traditional character development prior to the iceberg collision. That Molly Brown scene, that's one of just a few. The drama unfolds at the instant of the iceberg. It becomes a two and a half hour, it's not two and a half more hours after that, but the two and a half hours after that become the meat of the sort of, you know, play of this after that moment. The ship hits the iceberg just 30 minutes into the two-hour movie. So the story is is the sinking. Cameron doesn't hit the iceberg until the halfway point, but he also covers the sinking in amazing detail. So there's an entire movie before the collision and then there's an entire movie arguably after the collision in Cameron's movie. And calm down, you can... De- <laughs> <laughs> you can debate me on all of this in January. Trust me, I'm hoping I get 70 emails a day about my stuff on the 97 movie because there's a lot to talk about. There's no denying that Cameron took a gamble when he did that, but that gamble worked. So an hour and a half of building a world within a world of Titanic before she starts to meet her end. That's what Cameron does. And whether or not you're someone who likes that world of Jack and Rose, you have to admit that it's an injection of emotion into this chain of events. And I'll leave you there. You know, I have 20,000 things to say. We'll get there. So, oh, oh, this is interesting. One of the lookouts in A Night to Remember, so I'm talking about this collision scene, comes pretty early in the movie. One of the lookouts who spots the iceberg is the actor Bernard Fox, who will, in 1997, return to Titanic and play... Colonel Archibald Gracie. That's, I think, a really cool little fact. Okay, so you guys, Cameron has fully admitted that this film influenced him, and it's beyond obvious that it did. So let's zoom in on a few of the specific scenes that are similar. Now, dialogue that is similar is often stuff that's pulled from the hearings. Lord pulled it, Cameron pulled it. So Some of the similarities are not a copy of like a movie copying a movie, but just that they're pulling from the same uh, sources or from they're pulling from the same memoirs. Like there's the scene in both movies where Thomas Andrews talks to a stewardess and says, hey, put on your life belt, set a good example for the passengers. That interaction is from one of the stewardess's memoirs. So it's just sometimes that they're pulling from the set of often limited sources. But there are scenes that are... (laughs) direct copies that aren't that, that aren't one of those cases. So the scene where the band, in both films, there's a scene where the band continues to play. And, you know, Wallace Hartley essentially says, 
hey, they don't listen to us at dinner either. We might as well keep playing even if they're not listening. It keeps us warm. It keeps us busy. And I did read that someone who worked on as a consultant on the 97 movie said that he overheard Cameron saying that he liked that scene in A Night to Remember so much that he did, quote, kind of steal entirely that scene and put it in his own because it was so perfectly done. And that's hearsay. I, that's not, I would, ne- if I wrote a book and then a chapter was on this, I would never include that just so you know, or I would, but I would heavily pad it like I am in this podcast with, hey, we don't know if that, who knows if that conversation ever happened. But I did think it was interesting that I ran across that tidbit after observing that about the band scenes. Captain Smith's reaction to Murdoch is right after uh, he finds out it hit the iceberg is literally the same as the 97 movie. I feel like Bernard Hill, who plays Smith in 97, just watched this movie and copied Lawrence Naismith's performance. He plays Smith in 1958. Just it's a copy. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with that because it's it's well played. And there's the scene of Andrews and Smith that's really similar after the collision. They're talking about how much time the ship has. But again, some of that is from testimony from surviving officers. And Cameron went back to the text of sources. We know he did. He's really good at that. The scenes of third class men feeling the water for the first time, jumping out of bed, being the ones to have water on their feet first. That's similar in both movies and actually really realistic and probably happened exactly that way. These men were housed, the single men of third class, were housed in the most vulnerable part of the ship in terms of what where the iceberg hit and where it would have started to flood first. And they would have known before most people on on the ship, how dangerous the situation actually was. They were in water already. And I want to go back to a topic from a few weeks ago when I spoke to Stephen Schwingert, you know, one of the makers of the new documentary, The Six, which is incredible. And hopefully it'll come to streaming uh, some sort of VOD soon. And I'll let you know if I know that or if it's able uh, available to rent online. And it's about the six Chinese survivors of the Titanic. And this is a crucial part of this of their story, because they would have been housed in this area, single third class men, and they would have been made aware and they were seamen, they were sailors themselves. They were basically deadheading to, I, mean, I know that's a, a term for, you know, flights now for air travel, but it's a good sort of, you know, word to use so you know what I mean. But they were deadheading to go be on other ships, to go work on other ships. And so they were men of the sea, and they felt that water on their feet. I mean, that's one of the reasons they survived, is they knew proactively how to get up uh, to the lifeboats or, you know, how to survive in the the sinking situation. I'm on a tangent, but great film. I'll let you know when it's it's more available. So this, these scenes of the third class men are very, I think, accurate to use a, a word that I've questioned. There's also the great scene in A Night to Remember of the third class people coming up on decks finally at the end after they've been held back, seeing first class for the first time. And they're seeing it as it's as it's drowning, but they're still astounded by how nice everything is. And there we are with that class uh, analysis is constant in this movie. There is Edith Rosenbaum Russell and her notorious toy pig, which she carried onto a lifeboat with her. She called it her mascot. She was a first class passenger. She claims that she held on to this. Her mother had given her this little pig that made noise and she was holding on to it and was scared to get in a lifeboat. But one of the crew threw it down into a lifeboat and said, oh, now you've got to go get it. Because he was trying to obviously convince her to go into the lifeboat. So Edith actually was still alive. She was one of the ones that Lord interviewed. She met the woman who played her on set. She was really into it. She actually willed the pig to Walter Lord himself, supposedly. That is what I read. And we have, of course, Ismay. Here we are with Ismay again. And I think I I said it during my episode on him. It's this version of Ismay that might be perhaps the most believable 
Ismay is shuttling people into the boats. He's genuinely helping, but when the officers yell that the boat they're working on is full, he's left waiting. He looks like a scared child. He waits for the officer to order the lowering, and then he asks if there's anybody else. But it's his emotions seem tumultuous. He's full of genuine fear. So it's I think this scene does a good job in a way, even though oh, there's some other scenes in the movie that are Ismay, sort of classic Ismay. Um, but I do think this scene does a pretty good job of balancing, you know, the way that some people have viewed him as a villain with maybe some more human emotion. It's it's really hard to say. Would love to hear your thoughts on it. But you know, either way, it's taking a lot of liberties. Any film depiction of a person is taking liberties. And as I mentioned in his episode, which is episode two, there's no way we could ever understand that moment of him getting into the lifeboat. Truly not. I don't think ever. And in Lifeboat 6, there's an interesting scene I talked about in my last regular episode last week. I talked about Helen Churchill Candy. She's in the boat with Margaret Brown, and she's also in a boat in the boat with Arthur Puchin, who was a yachtsman, first-class yachtsman, who actually is allowed to get into Boat 6. Uh, they need an extra set of hands, someone that is a seaman in some way. And one of the crew says, if you can, you know, get on that rope and swing down to that boat, you can get in it. And he does it. And that that scene is iconic in the Titanic lore. And it's in here. From what I had read, Helen Churchill Candy is the one that yelled up, we need another man in the boat. And so you sort of hear what is essentially her voice, I guess, in this movie. We also have drunk Chief Baker, Charles Jockin. He is in my bonus episode, just so you know. This is the notorious Baker who supposedly survived even in the water after the, the ship had gone down, um, despite the cold, because he was warmed by the, his insides were warmed by the alcohol he had consumed. The man did survive, and from every version of the account that I've read of him hanging to the, onto the side of the collapsible boat, like he was in the water for a long time. So Jockin was still alive. He wrote letters to Walter Lord. I think actually he had someone write them to Walter Lord. I don't, um, I think I read somewhere that he wasn't able, he wasn't literate. So he was communicating to Walter Lord. There is this great scene. I think I'm actually going to play it for you. I I I debated whether to play a lot of scenes from the movie as I, I recorded and I essentially decided not to because my analysis is admittedly a little choppy on this one and I just, because I'm jumping around and, but there is, I will play this one because it's, it's amazing. This is uh, Captain Rostran of the Carpathia, the rescue ship who did make it to Titanic. This is him being woken up by the Marconi boy. There's a distress call just come through. The Titanic. They've struck a bird. Yes, no, they've struck a bird. They want us to come at once. They're sinking. The Titanic. Don't be a fool. It's true. I'm going to the captain. There's nothing inside. Take over. Right. Sir. Sir. What the devil's going? Haven't you learned to knock before you come in here? It's a distress call, sir, from the Titanic. She's sinking. I'm sorry, sir. I... Mr. Dean, turn the ship round. Head northwest. I'll work the course out for you in a minute. I think that scene is such a great marriage of, I mean, good filmmaking, particularly for 1958, but just a very 1950s British sort of interpretation of the dialogue. I love it. So the shots in the movie of third class being held back of some of the Irish characters breaking through barriers. This is a huge parallel, obviously, also with the Cameron film. And I think instead of making any claims that Cameron copied something, it's instead important to remember that both directors made an active choice to include these scenes. That's important, which in both eras makes a bottom line statement about class that it must be addressed and that the survival rates of third class passengers were horrifically lower and there's a reason for that and in the early days of titanic reporting and history writing that wasn't a given there are to this day histories i've come across recent ones that claim the third class gates weren't locked and i don't know what their agenda is there by trying to point that out it doesn't doesn't seem great 
literally at the wreck site. They've documented closed and locked steerage gates. In other words, what I'm trying to say, it was never a given that we'd see this part of the Titanic story told, this heartbreaking part of it, which is that the passengers' class, how much money they had, where they were from, had a direct impact on whether they would survive. Let that sink in. I know we talk about it a lot, but let that actually sink in. Okay, there is the Strauss scene of Ida and Isidore staying on the boat together. Cameron did shoot that scene, but he, uh, he, and he left them in the bed together at the end of the movie, but he shot the goodbye scene with them, and that was on the cutting room floor. The, another one that really struck me was the dishes breaking and the rolling carts in the dining rooms in A Night to Remember, really great shots. And these were ended up being some of Cameron's second unit shots in the 97 film. But I think the ones in A Night to Remember are just superior. The ones where the like the carts like rolling down through the dining room and it's it's kind of eerie. All right, there is the axe scene where in A Night to Remember, you see the third class passengers break that glass, get that axe. I definitely think direct influence on Cameron with Rose getting the axe. Um, They use the axe again when they break through the wall of first class and the steward uh, gets onto them. So I think I would venture to say that was that was probably pretty direct. And there are other scenes involving Thomas Andrews that seem really similar. And I will point out, here's another thing that was never a given. Thomas Andrews, obviously an crucial, very important person who was on board Titanic. He was managing director of Harland and Wolf. He was the head of the guarantee group for the ship. He he helped to design the ship. We'll talk about that. There's He's credited as the sole designer. There's more to it than that. So I'm not doubting his importance, but it really was Walter Lord in this movie that set him at the center of this narrative like Lightoller. The fact that Thomas Andrews, you know, by 97 is someone that Cameron is using in the way that he is, is a direct product of this. And another example of how some people just end up as stars of the narrative versus other people. And I talked about this a little bit in my last episode on Helen Churchill Candy. Her narrative has been spun a certain way and she's left out of a lot of it. But anyway, it's just important to keep that in mind. It's never it was never a given that any of these specific people would be our sort of main characters in this tale. So the third class Irish passengers in the movie they retreat towards the stern, they ride the stern as it rises. The Clarks, the second class couple, they struggle in the water. They're actually killed by a falling funnel. Here is where Lightoller takes charge of the collapsible on which he would survive in real life. This is all real, obviously. Murphy and Gallagher make it onto the collapsible. Murphy swimming about with the dead body of a boy in his arms. And it's the same lost boy that's comforted by a steward earlier on the ship. And this is easily the most disturbing part of the entire film. And to be clear, the tragedy should make us feel uncomfortable. I just, as a parent, this was particularly difficult to watch. It hit harder than maybe anything in Cameron's movie, which is saying a lot because it's my favorite movie of all time. Uh, Chief Baker Charles Jockin is also here, again, the collapsible, after giving up his space in a lifeboat, and he turns the bottle <laughs> to ease um, the stress. The wealthy couple, the ones with the 20 servants they're waving goodbye to at the beginning, the ones that are probably the Duff Gordons, they, of course, survive in a lifeboat. And there's a scene where they actually are saying like, no, we can't, we can't row back to save people. And they're very, very uppity. I don't know how much you know about Sir Cosmo and, and Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, but there was... They were brought to the inquiries in the UK because there were some real questions about how they ended up on a lifeboat and what their attitude was during the sinking. There's a lot to unpack there. So apparently no tank at Pinewood Studios where this was made and, and where they shoot the shot the, the sinking scenes was big enough to film the survivors in the water. And so this, the those shots were um, shot in the middle of the night on a cold 
morning in November in an outdoor swimming pool in London, apparently. And Kenneth Moore later said that when extras refused to jump into the water, he said he felt like he would have to set an example. Quote, I leaped. Never have I experienced such cold in all my life. It was like jumping into a deep freeze, just like the people did on the actual Titanic. And Side note, it wouldn't have been that cold. The shock of the water forced the breath out of my lungs. My heart seemed to stop beating. I felt crushed, unable to think. And I tried to, and he tried to shout to the extras to not jump in, um, but they did it anyway. Also, speaking of water scenes, remember Lawrence Beasley, the second class passenger, the second class survivor. He wrote a memoir. He was an English teacher, the one that was very literary. He's the one, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, at one point when the sinking was being filmed, and he was an old man at this point, in his 80s, I believe, he attempted to enter the scene and go down with the ship. (laughs) And I suggested when I mentioned him before um, that the the scholarship mentions this, and, and the analysis is usually that, you know, he was... He had the male survivor's guilt. I don't mean to laugh about that. That's not funny. But that he um, was attempting a corrective. He was attempting to go down with the ship this time. But director Roy Ward Baker didn't allow this as it would have been a union violation and would have closed down production. So in this movie, obviously, the ship does not split into two. This was not known definitively yet. The wreck had not been found. There was a lot of testimony at the Senate hearings that the ship had split, but the officers at the Senate hearings had testified that it stayed in one piece. Some politicking going on behind that. And so that had been the definitive account, really. We didn't, there wasn't, there's no representations in any depiction of Titanic splitting at that point because hadn't found the wreck. And we didn't know that some of the other survivors' testimony was actually accurate. Shocking. (laughs) So the creaking noises during the sinking in A Night to Remember were actually, I read this um, on IMDb. I do not have a source for it, but it was, this is so intriguing to me. I love it. The creaking noises were created um, by the set as it was winched up and down to create the tilting deck effect. And the microphone picked up these creaky noises. And so the director, Roy Baker, thought they added realism and sounded like groaning noises. So he kept them in. The water scenes at the end are really well done. Um, The flailing of the people, the terror, it was obviously an inspiration for Cameron and how he did those scenes when everybody ends up in the water. And while the end of the Cameron film is an emotional conclusion to Rose's very personal story, at the end of this movie, it is Crew who is guiding us through the end, and Lightoller at the very end saying, I don't know that I'll ever feel sure about anything again. That, like I spoke about at the beginning, this is all about the dawn of the age of anxiety. So Night to Remember premiered in... London on July 3rd, 1958. Among survivors attending were Box Hall, the widow of Lightoller, and C.V. Groves, who had been a third officer of the Californian. What's lost now is that there actually was a wave of criticism of the film at the time of its release, that the documentary style of it and emphasis on the realism left a space that should have been filled with an emotional, personal touch. This is in the reviews at the time. It truly is. This issue was at the crux of every single review, really, if it was a positive review, which let me be clear, there were many, many of them. This was a lauded film. Then it held the film up for its documentary style. If it was a critical review, it more cited that style and blamed it for the film lacking some level of entertainment. One of the big critiques of James Cameron is that he didn't include enough of the historical record and people, not enough of the documentary style. But And we'll talk about this more in January. I'd actually argue that it is all there. Um, A lot of it's more subtle and in the background, but it is there. And the sort of tagline among people who talk about the films just anecdotally seems to be that A Night to Remember is quote-unquote accurate and Cameron's isn't. That irks me to no end because I both films have some small inaccuracies in terms of what we know about the sinking now. 
I've never heard someone be able to list out any true inaccuracies of, of Cameron's film. Anyway, it irks me. There, like the, it irks me. The research I've done on the level at which Cameron researched every single scene that he shot, I think there, that film should have the reputation as being accurate in so many ways. Um, anyway, the movie was actually the and I to remember was actually more successful in the United States than the 1953 Hollywood Titanic had been, and and I to remember won the Golden Globe for English language foreign film for 1958. The advertising and promotional strategies were uber modern. Souvenir books, radio contests, quiz inserts in newspapers, swizzle sticks in the shape of Titanic, 1912 fashions in department store windows. So when someone tries to tell you that Cameron commodified Titanic in some new or adverse way, no, don't believe them. Cameron has said that he rewatched A Night to Remember before, right before these ideas of, of going down in the sub, partnering up with the Russians to get down to see Titanic, to think about writing his script, that he definitely watched A Night to Remember uh, right before those moments in his own life. So he does admit it. In A Night to Remember, the ship is our movie star, so to speak. It's the core. Cameron instead put two people at the center, made them the stars. And of course, in the process, his film produced two of the most beloved movie stars of a generation. Cameron's is an epic, but this one is too. And it set the standard, no doubt. And you can debate the authenticity of the individual bullet points of individual passengers like Ismay and their portrayals. You can do that for both movies. You can do that for any movie about a real event. But at the end of the day, the film was authentic to Lord's text, the text that was its gold standard. So it, the film, became a gold standard and influenced Cameron, rightly so. This movie is incredibly accurate to Lord's text, but there's a bigger mural to pull out to, though, especially now, as we stretch out the Titanic historiography to include new narratives, like the film The Six that I just spoke about, the story of the Chinese survivors, or the stories of the Syrian passengers, of whom there were many, which we'll get to next year, because I'm going to have an author on who has written extensively about them. I'm very excited to speak with her. I suppose I just want to challenge you, even if you're someone who is a huge fan of Walter Lord, if you're someone who's a huge fan of this film, which I get because it's a beautiful piece of British cinema history, just, I beg of you to look beyond the edges of it, though, and of Walter Lord. It doesn't discount the work. It doesn't discount him. But just let's put that on a bigger board with more space, too. But from a technical standpoint and overall, I, I, I get it. I know why people return to it. And it being in black and white, I think is a big part of that too. It sort of clearly delineates it as a classic Titanic film. And I think that's a big part of it as well. Don't get too mad at me. If you're a night to remember devotee, I really tried to look at this movie from every historical angle from, you know, in terms of Lord's history, in terms of film history, in terms of the Cameron movie. I'm, I really, my goal is always to, to offer several sides. All right. So thank you for listening. This is the final installment of the Titanic on film for 2021. I will be doing more next year. I'm not sure when. I think I might take a little break on this. I have covered the major ones so far. And so if I continue with it, I'm going to be covering, I would be covering obviously some of the mini series, probably more of the documentaries. So we'll see. I definitely want, I will return to it. I'm just not sure when. For my specialty in between episodes, I'm contemplating moving toward doing some books sometimes because I'm constantly reading and I never have the space to feature all of the books that I want to on here in terms of just my show notes and things. So I think that could be fun. I I really am going to spend some time over the holidays kind of thinking about the, the schedule and the structure a little bit. 
Thank you to my Patreon members. I have my first bonus episode up. Like I said, it's about the cooks and uh, chef Charles Jockin is in there as well. And a little bit about the history of the crew and how the crew was organized on board. And I do want to thank my two newest Patreon members, Wesley and Katya. And I, I do hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Thank you so much. And I will mention you in the regular episode as well, but I'm just... I'm so thankful and excited when everyone, when anyone joins that I just have to go ahead and say it. I cannot contain myself. Thank you to my Patreon members for supporting this podcast. Just that few dollars a month, it all adds up. It helps cover the cost of the pod. Like I always say, I'm a one woman show. It is joyful work, but it is a lot of work. I'm having the time of my life, but it is it's really appreciated. So if if you are someone that's able to do that, that's patreon.com um, backslash pod. If you're enjoying the show and you have a minute, Apple rate review. I know I mentioned it a lot, guys, but unfortunately in the algorithm of all of this, in terms of gaining listenership, it, those things really matter. So if you have a free minute, I would really appreciate it. The pod is, listenership is growing I feel like the reach of everything is growing. I've even received um, messages from some of the writers and historians in the Titanic community, and they have come across the podcast even organically, which is just blows my mind. It's amazing. All right. um, Some show notes for this episode. We'll have some of my sources. I did mention some important sources in this one, and I will cite those. If you want to contact me as usual, unsinkablepod at gmail.com. On Instagram, I am unsinkablepod. On Twitter, I am unsinkablepod. Please get in touch. Did I get something wrong? Did I get something right? You can yell at me if you want, if you disagree, politely and respectfully, please. Uh, But just let me know your thoughts. I am admittedly a little backed up guys on work. I am try- I'm trying to get this Robert Ballard episode ready for you because it's really crucial, I think, heading into my big Cameron series in the new year. So I'm not sure when that one's coming. I- I'm going to stick to Mondays. It is coming on a Monday in December. I-, I just don't know which one yet, but I want to make sure that it is 100% the Robert Ballard episode that you deserve. So it is coming in December. But then after that, I am going to take a little bit of a hiatus into um, until into January. I need to hunker down big time on these James Cameron episodes. It's going to be a multi-part series. I'm stoked, but I do need to not only take a little bit of a break and enjoy the holidays with my family um, and, and move away from work just a little bit during the holidays, but I also need to hunker. <laughs> I have so much more reading to do. I've got a lot of writing to do a lot. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's the schedule. We're going to be with Robert Ballard on a Monday in December, most likely December 20th would be my guess. And then let's all take a deep breath and a break. And then I'll be back in January with 1997. (laughs) All right. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening. This has been so fun. As always, I will see you soon. Bye.